Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Lady Mary Wortley Montague was brought up to believe that it was her face that was her fortune and her place to be simply decorative. But instead, it was the contents of her head and her willingness to accept new ideas about medicine that would save lives and transform the entire world. The end. Let's talk about Lady Mary Wortley Montague. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1715, Nicholas Rowe's play, The Tragedy of Lady Jane Grey, opened in London. A hurricane off the coast of modern-day Florida killed nearly a 1,000 people on board 10 Spanish galleons, and the tons of silver and gold cargo sunk to the bottom of the sea. It would be over 240 years before it was all recovered. Rhode Island legalized slavery, and Maryland declared that all enslaved people entering the province and their descendants were to be enslaved for life. King Louis XV ascended to the throne of France. Doggett's coat and badge, now the oldest rowing race in the world, was first held. Dorothea Exlieb, the first female licensed medical doctor, was born. King Louis XIV and a Benedictine monk and champagne perfecter, Dom Perignon, both died. And in 1715, Lady Mary Wortley Montague contracted smallpox, which would lead to her place in medical history. Mary Pierpont was born on May 15, 1689, the eldest of the four children of Evelyn Pierpont and his wife, Lady Mary Fielding, though Papa had two later additional daughters by his second wife. Mary Pierpont was born in Holm Pierpont Hall, which may give you the idea that her station is somewhat elevated in life, and you would be correct. Papa's family was extremely elevated. The Pierponts began life in England no less than with William the Conqueror in the 11th century. His great-great-great-grandmother was Bess of Hardwick. We are talking well-connected aristocrats here. The Pierponts were land-owning families. They had an estate that every generation built upon called Thorsby. What a name. And through wise marriages, which was another family tradition, their wealth kept growing and growing with every generation, each bride bringing in more property or more wealth and increasing the entire Pierpont portfolio. Just over a year after Mary's birth, Papa inherited the earldom of Kingston-upon-Hull after two of his elder brothers died without children. And so from that date, as the daughter of an earl, Mary was now given the courtesy title of Lady Mary Pierpont, which is exactly the same reason that Lady Mary Crawley has that title in Downton Abbey. And as if this doesn't make it even more complicated, our Lady Mary's mother was also Lady Mary, even before our Mary's papa inherited the earldom. Lady Mary Fielding was herself the daughter of an earl, and I'm sorry to say that what we know of her story goes a lot like this. She had her first daughter at 21, then had three more children in as many years, and departed this earth directly after the birth of her last child, the only son and heir. And I find it quite interesting that most older references that I have say she died in 1693, and her body was moved to its final resting place in 1697. 
And then the newer research material says that she died in 1697. Now, I don't know if that's new information or or what, but it does seem that the earlier date dovetails with everyone saying that she left to go live with her grandmother at the age of four, you know? Mm -hmm. Right, right. But whatever the date, her mother died at a very early age, and Papa was left with four motherless children under the age of five. Now, what was Papa like? What was his deal? Well, professionally, he was a member of parliament. He had been elected to the Commons until he came into his title, which until 1999 meant you're not eligible to stand for election. I guess you're no longer common. Go sit in the House of Lords, you know? (laughs) Well, he was a member of the Whig Party. And I guess, I guess just as shorthand, we'll say that they are perhaps the more liberal, not perhaps the one more interested in the divine right of kings. Uh They had all participated not too many years before in something called the Glorious Revolution, in which intellectuals disposed of the king and installed a better one, and also started working toward limited powers of monarchy. Parliament was going to be the big boss. Mm -hmm. I did not know this until researching this. The term Whig was actually a term that was applied to horse thieves before it became a political party, which actually happened about the same time that we're talking now. So they're fresh wigs. <laughs> why? I wonder why they named them wigs after horse thieves. I, because they're rash and like sneaky. Brazen. Or... Yeah, maybe. So it might have been something that started out as a pejorative term that they accepted and just Correct. ran with. Like chicks. Or suffragette. Correct. So as to Papa's personal self, here is a description of him from a contemporary. He hath a fine estate, is a fine gentleman of good sense, well-bred, and a lover of the ladies. He makes a good figure of black complexion, well-made, and not yet 40 years old. So just think of maybe Clark Gable, although we can see a portrait of him. The wig just is (laughs) so distracting. (laughs) That's W-I-G, not (laughs) W-H-I-G. Yes. Well, he was the recipient of ever-increasing titles, offices, responsibilities. He's a friend to royalty. He's a man about town. He was doing a lot of things. But what he did not have time for, nor interest in, was the upbringing of his children. Honestly, children at this level of society would have been left mostly to servants in any case, you know, even if their mother had been alive. But nevertheless, the four siblings were dispatched to the estate of their grandmother. Elizabeth Pierpont was to share the custody with Papa's sister, who's called Lady Cheney. Together, this group was going to raise these four children at West Dean House, which is grandmother Elizabeth Pierpont's home, which sounds lovely, except later in life, Mary would describe West Dean as, quote, nothing to be liked. Everything in the same mode and fashion as the days of King Arthur and the Knights of the round table. That's worse than avocado shag carpeting. (laughs) Counterpoint. I found a 20-page research paper about the history and appearance of this very house. If anyone's interested, we'll put it in the links. For a visual, to me, it looks a lot like a miniature, teeny tiny version of Darcy's house in the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice. So if you were to look at the drawing, and you can, because I'll put it in the links, and in fact, I'll just put it on the Pinterest board. The house is one thing, but it had extensive grounds with forests and water features and this circular bowling green and 
I'm not sure how much of this she was able to enjoy because she was under the legislation of two nannies and one Madame DuPont, who was in charge of everyone and in charge of speaking nothing but French. And in Mary describing it as so antiquated, she also later wrote glowingly about her childhood there and running to catch the sunset at the top of a hill because it was a magical time of day. So she didn't hate it all the time, at least not the outside of it. But this really was a grand establishment. It was left to grandma, here's what's interesting, in her own right, because her papa only had daughters, two daughters, and her sister had married someone her family disapproved of. Grandma got the estate and her sister got five shillings in the will, which is like the finger. (laughs) This family, note that story. It just repeats over and over. They use inheritances as weapons like I have never seen. But also, Grandmama had been a widow for 25 years. So not only did she own this estate in her own right, she had no husband to tell her what to do with it. Yes. So for the first eight years of her life, though marked early by her mother's death, it was largely unremarkable, except for one incident of note. Papa, Eve, as his friends called him, was a member of a select group of literary and political men called the Kit Kat Club. They were serious influencers, probably leftover Whigs from the Glorious Revolution and the people they brought into the fold. Well, this Kit Kat Club had a curious tradition. Once a year, each member was to propose the name of a lady, a beauty to be celebrated, and these dudes would commence to argue and discuss among them if her looks merited a, quote, toast. Basically, this woman would be their mascot for the year. Mm -hmm. Somebody would write a poem. Somebody would deliver the poem. Many drinks taken in her honor. Her name engraved on a trophy. Sort of gross looking back. (laughs) Yes. But okay. Okay. That's the deal. Whatever. And so Papa floated the name of his daughter, Lady Mary Pierpont. Eh, we've never met her. It's because she's seven years of age. She's not in society. And these dudes, drunken as they were, said, we must clap our eyes on her visage in order to make our decision. (laughs) So Papa sent for Mary and she got all dolled up in a fancy dress and was brought out to this group. And I'm going to continue that kind of creepiness. At the group, she was passed from lap to lap. Each man inspected her to decide if she was worthy. And this was like a great honor for her. And also they were all like giving her candy and smooches and stuff. I mean, yeah. Yeah. She was intoxicated by it. She absolutely loved it. She said it was one of the highlights of her life. It was very glamorous. It was a turning point for her. But I'm just going, oh, my gosh, that's kind of gross. You know, I mean, these guys that started their group because they were forming a a war, you know, now they're using that same argumentative energy to decide what woman is worthy of this honor. Okay, so she was unanimously voted the beauty of the year and her name duly inscribed on the cup. And I don't know, man, Papa was proud of her. And. I guess more importantly, her name was out there and she had entered into society approximately 10 years before she ought, probably. (laughs) Um, But she did make a good first impression. 
I don't know. I guess it's kind of a theme for me that Papa sort of thinks what was a lady person, but her outward appearance, you know, and, mm-hmm. and what benefit she could give him. Because mm-hmm. I think this incident or whatever, you know, he was the instigator of this gloriously raucous, interesting, unusual party that they had then. And so his name was up there too. Right. Mm-hmm. Women as accessories. Yes. Yeah. Life changed again for Lady Mary upon the death of her grandmother. When Grandma Pierpont died, she gave the bulk of her estate to Mary's youngest sister and then some of her estate to the second sister. So Evelyn and Francis, the sisters, were receiving things. William, the brother, obviously would receive his inheritance through their father, but there was absolutely nothing in it for Mary. Nothing. She got nothing. I found no reason other than she was a handful. And I find that hard to believe to be the only reason. Did you find anything else? Well, what I think happened just based on previous transactions within this family, there is a great tradition of a grandparent leaving money in trust for a specific grandchild through the female line. So I'm wondering if the eldest daughter, Lady Mary, had been left her mother's money in trust and her papa had a hold of that. Oh, that had been her own father's situation. Although he was the youngest son, he had been left his own fortune. So even if his brothers hadn't died and he hadn't acceded to the title of Earl, he would still be okay. It was a little bit of a leapfrog situation that was very common in Mary's family. And because nobody at the time seemed to think it was strange that she'd been left out of the will. And I can't imagine why, unless everyone also knew that she was entitled to this vast fortune from her noble mother's money. Okay. Okay. I'll buy that because her father, Evelyn, he got his vast wealth through his mother. Okay. And he was the third son. Okay. I like that theory. I was just feeling so badly for this spunky kid, you know, just being left out with nothing. So Lady Mary's youngest sister went to live with their aunt, the Viscountess Cheney, and the other three children were placed under their father's roof or roofs, fancy ones in town and country. Papa continued washing his hands of all of them, and Lady Mary was left to the management of servants, in particular, a governess who filled her head, or tried to fill her head, with what Mary called superstition and nonsense, by which we should read religion. Mary was a famous skeptic from an extraordinarily young age. But the place they got to do this in was magical. It's huge. It's located in Sherwood Forest with a 965-acre lake, formal gardens. It's about 150 miles north of London. And I can't figure out how long it would take to do that by carriage. But Google tells me it's a 13-hour bike ride. So it's out in the country, this beautiful estate, very modern house. And there's Mary and her brother and her sister and their governesses and all the other staff. That's it. (laughs) But since no one was really about to provide her with an actual education, Lady Mary, middle schooler, took matters into her own hands and availed herself of her papa's extensive library, working her way through the shelves and keeping her own catalog of the things she had read. This library was a collection amassed by generations of Pierponts. They collected books. 
as an investment. So this library is massive. There's a librarian, both in London and at Thorsby, which is the estate they're living at. Lady Mary began to teach herself Latin. And after years of, prepare for new word, autodidactitude. (laughs) I actually use that word too. Well, I just called her an autodidact. Yeah. (laughs) Which means a self-educator, which I think Susan and I and probably most of you listeners are to some degree autodidacts. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to a history podcast. Um, Clap for everyone, but not a golf clap. You know what? (laughs) That is the best. Um, Yes. After years of this, she wrote Latin and read Latin just about as well as your average educated young man in the upper class. A rare accomplishment for a lady. But I can just imagine this little tween sitting in the corner with a dictionary in one hand and a book, any book in the other, and her stopping and looking things up. Mm-hmm. It's such a glorious image. I I, I kind of loved it. She read anything that grabbed her attention from histories to poetry to juicy novels, and nobody knew what she was reading. She said later, quote, when everyone thought I was reading nothing but romances. So she's reading classics and poetry and teaching herself Latin when they think she's just, you know, dabbling in romance stories. So she yep. was not reading The Babysitter's Club. She was reading The Iliad. That's right. <laughs> and she was really drawn to both female writers and stories with female protagonists, which makes complete sense. And there were a lot more female writers at this time than I even knew. I, I was like, how many writers were there? And then I started flipping through the pages. I was like, oh, that's a lot. Okay. And doesn't it say something about either her progenitors or the librarians in question that there were so many available to mm-hmm. her in the library? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess oh. I hadn't thought about that before, but someone had to have bought them unless they order them by the yard. Yeah. And the bookseller's like, I got to offload all these ones. Yeah. Well, they were investments. I mean, the family collected them, not because they liked to read. I mean, Mary herself could have cracked the binding on it, you know. Okay. It was probably a combination like, oh, here's a new, here's a new writer. She's going to be really famous. Or I think it's a woman, you know, she's writing under a nom de plume. One of the authors that Mary really loved was a woman named, again, Mary, Mary Estelle. And Mary Estelle's idea was that girls should be educated, that they should have their own schools and their own colleges to go to at least until they were married. And our Mary thought that was a great idea. And she started to think about her future and envisioned herself as a lady abbess, life in a monastery, just learning all day away from society. She could continue her childhood into her adult years without any, you know, but he's saying you need to get married and you need to do all these other things. She thought that looked like a pretty ideal life. Quite frankly, I agree with her. <laughs> well, they always say that to be a good writer, first you have to be a good reader. And Mary, sure enough, began to fill notebooks with her poetry. And later she wrote an autobiography disguised as a romantic tale to which she appended a disclaimer. I'm glad that this is around for us to see. In one of those collections, which she had written just for her friends to read, at the very beginning, she said, quote, I question not here is very many faults, but if any reasonable person considers three things, they will forgive them. One, I am a woman. Two, without any advantage of education. This is a direct quote. 
three, all of these was wrote by me at the age of 14. I really like it. She later wrote in a letter to a bishop, hello well, there is hardly a character more despicable or liable to universal ridicule in the world than a learned woman. So she's already disclaimering and um, maybe doubting herself a little as she starts to spread her wings in the Mm -hmm. literary world. And that's kind of sad. There was a British writer named Afra Ben who died almost exactly at the same time that Mary was being born. She had written a book entitled Voyage to the Isle of Love, which was one of Mary's favorites. So much so that Mary took the idea, reimagined it as the adventurer, and she wrote a story based on that same reimagined novel. I love it. Well, now I myself wrote notebooks full of Star Wars fanfic as a child when I didn't even know what fanfic was. You find a structure you like and then you build upon it. Yeah. Yeah. The first novel that I wrote, I thought I was Judy Bloom. (laughs) Oh, I know. But then again, here's Mary. And Mary's writing poetry about Cleopatra and Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great and his two wives. (laughs) She takes Virgil and reimagined it with a female protagonist. And I'm just writing about teenage love. (laughs) Oh, well. I really love it. Well, as she grew out of the schoolroom of one and into official young ladyhood, by which you should read Useful to Papa... (laughs) She did get a certain level of professional education, and I just rolled my eyes. She was sent to a carving master three times a week to learn how to serve meats at table because Papa's increasing prominence politically and socially meant that he had to have a hostess. She had to do the honors at the carving station. (laughs) Okay, I know. She also had like drawing lessons and, you know, okay, but I know it's useful, I guess. She took it very seriously. Well, and she began to move in court circles. I will give this to Papa. Once she was more into society and in the public eye, he had an open hand with her allowance. I do think it was because her appearance reflected well on him. Mm -hmm. That is what we face during the Gilded Age heiress podcast is the dripping of jewels of your lady folk are a good advertisement for your own wealth. Mm -hmm. But Lady Mary had a giant allowance. He was not stingy in any way. And how many prominent men who admired her virtuosity with a giant knife and her lovely appearance would value you for the contents of her head? Well, maybe more than you think. There were several prominent men of this time married to women who, in everyone's opinion, much smarter than themselves. I'm pointing at you, Duke of Marlborough. Um, <laughs> um, if you've ever seen the movie The Favorite, which is spicy, oh yeah, do not show your children's. <laughs> but Rachel Weiss plays this character, the Duchess of Marlborough, who is sort of credited with hauling her husband into both prominence and wealth. <laughs> so... That is not an unheard of scenario to have a, have someone attracted to a very smart lady. But there was one man in particular whose admiration for her turned into something deeper. One of Mary's best friends was a girl named Anne Wortley Montague. And Anne and Mary had a giggly, witty teenage girl correspondence going, you know, full of gossip and teenage girl talk. But Anne had an older brother named Edward. Mr. Edward Wortley was the son of an honorable, a grandson of the Earl of Sandwich, 
and elder brother of this best friend, Anne. He was a young lawyer. He was a member of parliament. He was devastatingly handsome. I understand his cheekbones were fabulous. <laughs> he was 11 years older than Lady Mary, and, and they met often and discussed the classics and had this teasing intellectual banter that he found intriguing, I think largely because it was so unexpected. And I am so reminded of Mary Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Fully half the people that talked to her were repelled by this unnatural you know, creature. It knows Latin and it's pretty head. Ah! And then the other half were like, wow, <laughs> and couldn't get enough, you know, and he yeah. unwillingly got dragged into the half that was very attracted to her kind of against his better judgment. Maybe. <laughs> he was a sort of conservative guy, but he just was so enamored with her. We know from Jane Austen that unmarried ladies do not correspond with gentlemen until they're engaged to them, of course. But letters to the man's sister or from the man's sister were perfectly acceptable. And so this giggly teenage correspondence that Mary and Anne had had for a, quite a long time suddenly changed tone. And it didn't sound like the letters to Mary were being written by a teenage girl. Instead, it sounded like they were being dictated by a much older man. <laughs> that is a perfectly smart subterfuge, I think. Oh, I do too. And I think for a girl like Mary, who is, you know, brought up on novels and romances and epic adventures, having this kind of um, subterfuge is the only word I can think of. I'm not being at the source right now. But in her life, in her actual life must have been very exciting for her. Well, and it seems like, and I'm kind of sad that in the letters, because you can read the letters, she says over and over again that I trust you'll burn this. Well, obviously he didn't. <laughs> so you oughtn't to have trusted him, although maybe he wanted to save them as mementos or whatever. But it seems that their mutual admiration sort of transformed into not, I wouldn't call it a love match um, by her own words, but a pleasant, comfortable arrangement of minds that could converse, you know. And mm -hmm. the problem is her friend Anne died at a very early age. And not only had she lost a very, very dear friend, she had lost the only way to legitimately communicate with her potential spouse as she saw him. But again, this is a girl brought up on plots and, <laughs> and intrigue. She was a socialite. She was around London at balls and operas, and she had a lot of friends, a very large network. And she figured out this way to shuttle communication between servants and friends so that she and Edward could keep corresponding quietly. She was very frank with him in her letters. She wasn't, as Jane Austen would have called it, miss-ish. She didn't beat around the bush a lot. She kind of laid it out in a way that I'm really proud of. She said, I mean, flat out, this is from her in a letter she wrote to him, which is already pretty daring. I know how to make a man of sense happy, but then that man must resolve to contribute something toward happiness himself. Like, this has got to be a reciprocal making of happiness. Right. They continued to correspond in secret until, oh no, Mary was sick. And a servant at her father's house intercepted a letter and took it to her father. Mind your business. But they didn't. And Papa blew up, blew up with rage. I mean, rage. Now, Wortley immediately did the right thing that society would have expected of him. 
when found to be corresponding with an unmarried lady, and immediately went to her father and offered a formal proposal for her hand. Now, had he been forced to do it, that's what (laughs) he thought that Mary had given her father the letter to precipitate a proposal. (laughs) Mary says, I was literally dying in bed. And none of that is true. However, it happened. He immediately did the right thing and Papa's steam dissipated. I mean, he is the grandson of an earl. Should the actual heir not have children, this man would become the next earl. Uh, He was close enough. Their fortunes were good. He immediately got his lawyer involved with Wortley's lawyer. And marriage was very much a financial and business transaction, a, a merger of houses. And Papa didn't want Lady Mary's or in this water at all. He sent her away saying, this has nothing to do with you. Ouch. And he sent her away. Sequestered her at the farthest estate that they had. So she could not even be involved in the discussion. So the immediate problem they faced was that Mary's father insisted on an entail. Second Downton Abbey reference. So his future son-in-law's estate, this is what this meant, would be put in trust for he and Lady Mary's first son. So this is a way to make sure that his bloodline, his grandson, would not be a victim of financial mismanagement. And of course, Wortley Montague found this extraordinarily offensive. There is another issue that they were going head to head on and they couldn't agree on. Papa insisted that when they got married, uh, Edward was to provide a home that Mary could continue living in the manner to which she had become accustomed. Edward, his money was tied up in a future inheritance. He wasn't as liquid at that particular moment as he needed to be to buy a house. So they were like, we can't come to an agreement here because I can't provide this house that you want me to right now. And I don't know if I'm crazy about your your deal, you know, uh, the inheritance. And so I'm going to call him Mr. Wortley because Wortley Montague is like really long. So Mr. Wortley kept writing to Lady Mary, like, how much are you coming with? What is your settlement? How much money do you have? Um, He kept asking in different formats and she responded in very tart fashion. And I quote, do not think I have a hand in making settlements. People in my way are sold like slaves, and I cannot tell you what price my master will put upon me. Oh, cringe. <laughs> so Mr. Wortley was kind of livid about what had happened to what he thought was going to be a relatively simple transaction. Might I have the hand of your daughter? Sure, let's stamp this piece of paper. Oh, no, it turned into something just dark and whack and irritating. And he had a friend who wrote for the Tatler and kind of gave him a wink, wink, nudge, nudge and said, I hope you don't mind. I use some of your ideas in my article. (laughs) And I quote, a woman's first lover has 10 to 1 against him. The very hour after he's opened his heart and his rent rolls, he's made no other use of but to raise her price. While the poor lover very innocently waits till the ends of court had debated about the alliance, all the partisans of the lady threw difficulties in the way and other offers come in. And the man who came first is not put in possession until she's been refused by half the town. Like that's in the paper. (laughs) And they're prominent enough that people are probably like, oh, ha ha ha. I mean, imagine how the lady in question feels if you with all the power to walk about and influence policy feel this way. Will they ever be able to work anything out?
Mary Pierpont and her suitor have a tumultuous relationship via letter. Both of them broke it off at assorted times, but Papa was over it and moved forward with alternate plans of his own. Plan B. That would be one Irish aristocrat by the name of, this is a real name, people, Clotworthy Skeffington. Now, he's not the first of his name, and by no means is he the last. I think we are dealing with the fourth Clotworthy Skeffington in the family. Silence. (laughs) So Mary and her young lady friends throughout their young ladyhood had developed a system of, I don't know if I would call it exactly rating the men that their fathers would pick out for them, but they had like the dream guy that would be heaven. Oh, he would have this and he would be this and like nobody was going to get their heaven. They were pretty sure. But they also had people they considered to be and the code was hell, like the absolute opposite of everything they would ever want. Ideally, they would end up in the middle ground somewhere. Unfortunately, Clotworthy Skevington, his picture was in their little dictionary of terms next to hell. He wasn't a bad guy. He just wasn't the guy for her. She knew Sparks. She had Sparks with Edward. And this guy, he was not as old as Edward, but he just did nothing for her at all. But what he did do is put together a very handsome prospectus for her father with all the things that Papa wanted for Mary. So as far as Papa was concerned, this was a done deal. The heir to an Irish Viscount whose eldest son would automatically inherit. So no need to have an entail. Generous settlement, good networking potential, order the wedding clothes, make the trousseau, buy the trunks. This is on the road. And she asked her dad, can I please remain single instead of marrying him? Yes, he said, but forever I will prohibit you from marrying anyone else. And if you're hoping that my death will free you from this deal, I will make sure that you don't have enough money. So basically, sure, go ahead, honey. Can you support yourself? So there goes the, you know, Lady Abbess dream that she had in her childhood. That's flying away. And Wortley heard and wrote to ask, okay, should I approach your father again? No, he's beyond that. (laughs) You waited too long. You snoozed, and now I'm losing. Elopement's the only way. If you take me, I shall come to you in only a nightgown and a petticoat. Like at this point, there's not going to be a settlement, you know? And time was running out. Luckily, she got a little bit of a break. The lawyers for Mr. Skeffington had made some kind of fundamental error, and Papa wanted that corrected and re-signed. So the settlement and contract has gone back to Ireland and gives her just a little bit of time. So plans were laid with Mr. Wortley, and he went and got a special license, which means you could get married anywhere without reading the bans out in church, you know, i.e. outing yourselves. And there were plans for sneaking out and leaving in the night. So Papa found out and ordered her away to the country. He was just enraged. And Wortley sped off hell for leather after her in hot pursuit. And there was a little bit of a comedy because they had ended up sleeping at the same roadway inn one night and didn't know that each other were under the same roof. Well, they were married immediately. That's romantic. That's like right up your alley. 
It absolutely is. And it sounds like the plot summary for a novel that she would have read. But here she is, you know, coming to the man that she loves with no contract, no dowry, absolutely zero financial assistance or support. She had no fancy house to move into. You know, the romance part of the whole thing is going to start to wear off really fast, especially since the first place they moved into was his bachelor digs, which again reminds me of Mary Lincoln, how they moved into his bachelor inn. Remember? Yeah, Yeah, I do. Well, so not so romantic, being left in the country while he goes back to London to go to work. She was to find a place for them to live a little out of the way, inexpensive if possible. Um, His party, the Whigs, was in trouble and his prospects for rising in the ranks were not as bright as they once would have been under the previous government. Well, she thought... I. I thought we were going to make our way together, not this me sitting here in a house with no library. Um, Man, she did have her champions among both their acquaintances and her family, but Papa was, of course, infuriated and he wouldn't lift a finger. Both of her other sisters were married to the noblemen that Papa chose for them. He was not about to let this marry scenario happen again. Her brother was married at the young age of only 18, to an extraordinarily rich 16-year-old overtly and openly for her money. He's like, who needs you, Lady Mary? Almost like, you know? Mm -hmm. And I guess that's that. As far as he's concerned, he is going to rid himself of these burdens at last. Well, Lady Mary was, as they say, brought to bed of a son and heir. But her own papa was deprived of his. Not long after Mary and Edward's son was born, who they named, hold yourself, Edward Mortley Montague. Mm. Yeah. Shortly after that, Mary's brother, William, who was married with two kids at this point, contracted smallpox and he died quickly at the age of 20. He had left behind a son of his own. So Papa's lineage was pinned. There's an asterisk. It depended on the survival of one small toddler. Papa married again to a woman one year older than his oldest daughter. He's starting over. Right away. Like he got the other two married off and he was married himself right away. That cracked me up. So guess what else is starting over? The kingdom. Queen Anne died in August of 1714, and heartbreakingly, despite 17 pregnancies, Queen Anne had no heirs, none. She had had one son who had lived to the age of 11, and his death over a decade ago had created a succession crisis, and they decided to handle it at that time. It had been determined that a Protestant branch of the family would inherit, and so it was that the new king was George, a German-speaking second cousin of Queen Anne's, who was going to become the new king. But he was Whig-friendly. Hooray! And Lady Mary scented the whiff of opportunity. She encouraged her husband to use his family connections to get a foot in the door with the newly empowered party. Um, you know, She's giving him advice from afar. She herself at last came to London to live at the time of the opening of Parliament. 
And she became quite the society mover and shaker. Of course, she had known a lot of these Whig politicians since her birth, or at least since she was seven years old, (laughs) and had literally been the toast of the town. Her nobility, Papa, had been elevated to Duke. That is literally the highest you can get in the nobility without actually being royalty. That gave her entree in the highest circles of court. Mary began to learn German just so that she could cultivate those of the new king's mistresses who had accompanied him from Germany. Also accompanying the king, his heir, the crown prince, who did not get along with his father and whose household operated as a separate shadow court. And though Lady Mary thought the crown prince was, quote, limited of intelligence, nevertheless, Lady Mary found kindred spirits at this shadow court, which Princess Caroline, an intellectual, filled with writers and philosophers and scientists. So I automatically like Princess Caroline for her taste (laughs) in friends. Now, this is much more up Lady Mary's personal alley, to be honest. And she fell in with two satirists in particular, one man named John Gay, who was later famous for his Beggar's Opera, which was a send up of Italian opera, and a poet named Alexander Pope, already famous as a writer. I just want to note that these two guys, Mr. Gay and Mr. Pope, later faced giant blowback for their, quote, libelous, scandalous and disrespectful work. Okay, just a little background. But (laughs) Mary and Mr. Pope and Mr. Gay, these three wits and wags, wrote a little series of thinly veiled satires, like roasts. And as to these little pieces, they amounted to sort of a slam book. You know what a slam (laughs) book is? Yeah. They were just supposed to be passed around to trusted friends on the DL. But think about if you were to write a saucy note about your teacher or your boss. And then you kind of set it free in your environment. Wait, isn't this the plot of Mean Girls? <laughs> is it? I'm, I'm the cool mom. Okay. Well, the court is a much more dangerous place than either study hall or the pink carpeted rooms of Mean Girls. You're playing <laughs> with fire. You know, when you're in the company of people who get you, how all of a sudden your wit and your intellect feels elevated? and you're in a really good place, and you can speak your mind and do your craft, whatever it is, that's where Mary was at this time. She felt empowered by this new life that she was creating, even though her father said, oh, I'm not supporting you. They're doing a fine job of creating a really nice life for themselves in London. In December of 1715, at the age of 26, Lady Mary was struck quite suddenly by smallpox. It was a terrifying, terrifying disease which killed approximately 400,000 Europeans a year during Mary's lifetime or left you blind if you survived. Almost certainly you'd be left with scars, pock marks, pox marks. Smallpox actually originated as early as like 10,000 BC and it came to Europe in the Middle Ages. In Mary's own great-grandparents' day, The strain of smallpox that people got was not that bad. It was almost like when we were kids and got chickenpox and our parents put all of us in the same bed together so we'd all get it and we'd all have immunity. It was an awful couple of weeks, but it wasn't debilitating. 
within the few generations between them and now, the strain has evolved and it is a very deadly disease. Smallpox altered the royal succession in countries all over the globe. At least 11 reigning monarchs died of it. Our own Marie Antoinette, Queen of France, she was only the queen because an older sister had died of smallpox. And so, in fact, did Grandpa King in that same episode. What happens to you when you get this smallpox, this virulent form of smallpox? Well, let me tell you. The head is swollen to a monstrous size. The eyes are entirely closed. The lips swollen and livid purple. The face and surface of the whole body are covered with pustules, which issue putrescence. Scarcely the form of a human remains to be seen. That's a quote from a contemporary writer. That's not good. And then the treatment amounted to torture. The medical treatment at the time, they either bled you They thought, well, we're going to sweat it out. And they covered you with layers and layers of blankets while you had this really high fever. And if that didn't work, they took away those blankets and put wet bedding on you, thinking that it's going to freeze it out of you. They would also give you emetics and make you vomit until tears ran out of your eyes and you could no longer produce anything. And one man said he was prescribed 12 bottles of beer acidulated with spirit of vitriol to be taken every four hours. That seems extreme. Also, spirits of vitriol are sulfuric acid. Okay, that's where the vitriolic comes from? Um, yeah. Oh, I, just this moment. Wow. (laughs) Did you hear the bell dinging? (laughs) Well, it's not enough to be sick. They're going to torture you while you're at it. Mm -hmm. You know, with nothing real to be done, you'd almost be better off being a poor person with an attentive mother who will sponge your forehead to keep the fever down and then occasionally give you a bowl of oatmeal. Like, I think you'd be better off. Yes. I mean, the illness alone is making you so uncomfortable. Those lesions are itchy as they dry. They're even itchier. And you're sensitive to everything. Mary was so sensitive to sound that they covered the street in front of her bedroom with straw so the horse's hooves didn't make too loud of a noise to disturb her. Here is Lady Mary Wortley Montague dying, says the scuttlebutt of London society, and her poems leaked. They leaked and they started to be shown around. It's just bad timing. I guess they thought they were safe because she was going. I don't really know. But here she is then. After that, recovered, but severely pockmarked. Her eyelashes were gone, I think, permanently. Mm -hmm. And her eyes had turned red and they would never get back to the normal color ever. The vast majority of courtiers had been biting their fingernails and were overjoyed that she had come back to the land of the living. They were waiting eagerly to see her whatever state physically she was in. Some of the catty lady persons of court thought it would be super funny to make little puns about her before her return. Now think about this in a British accent, not to be pitied, like pitied. Oh, And some of her male friends are like, ooh, these bees better be ready for when she comes back because her pen is sharper than all of your tongues. There was another unworthy faction at court that were holding their breaths and wondering eagerly what Princess Caroline might do when she got a hold of those slam book 
satire poems that Lady Mary had written that referred to her and her court pretty specifically. Some of her enemies were thinking, however, will she come back to court? Her beauty is gone and now her goodwill is demolished too. And it's kind of sick that they were all waiting around for her downfall. I say all, it's probably an extraordinarily small minority and that's who we remember. Mm -hmm. Um, Given that she was so beloved pretty much throughout this whole story, by the way. So I'm giving them too much space in this story. (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, it must have felt like an attack on her, though, at the time. You know, her brother died and then she got so deathly ill and just coming off of that to have this scandal about her writing just going around in court. And I suppose the only silver lining of it was is that she was being accepted as a poet, which was for her, that was a good thing, but that would be it. You know, what, how did she get there? It's not a good way. Well, Princess Caroline herself actually took it well. And she punctured the balloon of dirty happiness that her court was blowing up. And it actually doesn't seem that bad from, from here. One of the couplets says, a greater miracle is daily viewed a virtuous princess in a court salute. So if you think about it, like, well, the princess is virtuous and Mm -hmm. look around. Is she telling a lie? You know, the intellectual princess admired Lady Mary's wit and ability and got over it and was the bigger person and graciously welcomed her back. And so everyone else had to follow her example, whether they liked it or not. For that, I am going to toast Princess Caroline for being the bigger person. Mm. Very nice. You know who was not so gracious, who was very angry, (laughs) and I don't know that he ever got over it, was Mr. Wortley Montague himself. He was the one who was furious. He hoped to rise in position at court and all this talk, all these looks, he was just out of sorts. And you know, once upon a time, this man had said when she had measles, if you're disfigured, I'll have fewer rivals for your heart. (laughs) And even now, it was her mind he was mad at. (laughs) Just Uh like you. The thing he loved was the thing he now sort of also hated. Right. But things weren't as bad as Edward could have imagined them to be. This was not his undoing because he was given an appointment from the new king, a five-year term as ambassador to Turkey. It's a big deal. Turkey and the Venetian Republic had been at war for a few years, and Austria was by treaty supposed to come in on Venice's side. But if they did, the Spaniards were going to take advantage of their absence and exert their own power along the Mediterranean. It's this giant house of cards. And so his job was going to be stop Austria from joining the war, get Austria to make a treaty of their own with Turkey. A lot depended on it. Ordinarily, when these men were given these assignments, they went alone and their wives and their families stayed behind. But Mary, the one who had written about being an adventurer when she was just a teenager, saw it as a golden opportunity for her. And she was having none of this stay back in London stuff. She wanted to use that get out of London card to go on this adventure and maybe give some time, you know, for all the bad things that had been happening. Let that cool off a little bit back in London before she came back. And there was a certain attraction to going farther than people often went. I think being a little bit of a pioneer in that regard, too, was very exciting, often to the unknown. That's like these people that are wanting to go to Mars. 
I think it's the exact same instinct. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. I can see that. I can see that. Sure. Except in this case, they're be able to do it on the king's dime, you know? Right. It took about four months for all the arrangements to be made, for the servants that were going to travel with them to be acquired, for the wardrobe to be created. Finally, they were ready to set off the family and their entourage staff for faraway Ottoman Empire. They were heading to Constantinople, not Istanbul. If you are too young to get that, we are very sad. And we will put that <laughs> song also either again. in Pinterest or in the show notes okay. again. While they were on their way, and um, you know, this isn't the era of modern communication where you get the news as it happens. There had been a development in the war. There'd been a decisive battle that put the Turks at a disadvantage. So the new ambassador was ordered to stay instead of proceeding, stay in Vienna to mediate. And that was fine with Lady Mary because she wanted to take in everything she saw along the way. And a delay meant that she could investigate her new environment. She wrote many, many letters home to a lot of different people. She um, expressed some disgust, I think, at the religious excess, you Lutherans and my birth faith of Catholics came in <laughs> for her special disdain. On the flip side, she was seeing some things that kind of raised her eyebrows and brought like a little naughty smile to her face. She wrote back to her friends and her sisters about how it was acceptable in Vienna for married ladies to take lovers. She wrote, quote, "'Tis established custom for every lady to have two husbands, one that bears the name and another that performs the duties." <laughs> she outlined the social etiquette. For instance, if a wife is invited to a dinner, then both men must also be invited. And how about the length of these lower relationship commitments? She called them submarriages. And she said submarriages generally last 20 years. Wow. I know. So that's interesting. So she's like living it up. I don't think she's doing the second husband thing. No, see, she did on the dance floor get a very specific offer. A young man approached her and offered to take that second position. And if I'm not acceptable, I will find you another candidate. And she wrote, well, gallantry and good breeding are different in different climates, <laughs> aren't they? As different as morality and religion. And that's a theme that goes through most of her writing from now on is is the standards you're brought up with and grow up among are certainly not the standards everywhere. And people can be considered just as correct mm -hmm. while being the polar opposite of what you're used to. I love that. Mm -hmm. Also, she said she liked the argumentative nature of the Austrian court very much. She said she was civil and gave the appearance of thinking that no one is important enough to disagree with. So see, everyone's fighting and she wants to be contrary. And the only way she can do that is not to argue with anyone on purpose. <laughs> I think that is so great. Yeah, it is. And just to put a little post-it note on here, we're talking about the court of Charles VI and Empress Elizabeth, who a year after Mary is here, will give birth to the future Empress Maria Theresa, mother of Marie Antoinette. All these families are entangled. Definitely. 
Meanwhile, I just want to throw in a side note that Mary is receiving increasingly stalkery and lewd letters that followed her from home from Alexander Pope. Almost like those dirtbag texts that you see online. Like, can you believe this guy sent this? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, they get to a point where I'm like... I don't even know about this. But anyway, so those letters, which, you know, start out in a spirit of banter, start to get just increasingly, I don't know, the longer she's gone. I think a good word is lewd. Yeah. So um, Mr. Wortley Montague was ordered to travel to Hanover to meet with his king. You know, he's from Hanover and goes back, quote, home four or five times a year. And that's where he is. And it's nearby. He needs to get some more instructions. So yet another diversion from Constantinople. Hooray, says Mary. (laughs) We're off to some more places. And people noticed, and I want to quote someone, since Lady Mary's arrival, the king takes notice of no other lady, which the ladies of Hanover don't relish very well. Uh-huh. So you know what? She gets there and the king's like, hooray, my friend. And he's all about her. Uh-huh. It's, um illustrates her charm and how people were attracted to her. You know, there's just those people with that X factor and she was one of them. I love reading about all the adventures she had on her way out of Hanover and on her way to the final destination. She she writes about this high road through the mountains and the drivers had fallen asleep. Her husband is asleep. She was asleep. The only people keeping them from plunging to their deaths over this cliff is like the horses. (laughs) And she had to wake everybody up. She got whisked through deep snow on a sleigh, which is the fastest that she had ever gone. And I can just imagine, you know, in this era before motorized transport, a team of six horses can pull a sleigh awful fast. You know, can you imagine your hair's blowing back and just like the just sheer energy of the cold air and just the novelty of it? That was great. They were handed over very ceremoniously at the border. They had been accompanied by hundreds of imperial uh, military escorts and they passed them to hundreds of Turkish ones on the border. So a much, much, much grander version of the handover we saw in Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, full of that much ceremony. Mm -hmm. Full of that much ceremony, but the difference between the cultures was not as um, light as the difference between the Viennese and the French culture. Does that make sense? Like the difference between where they had been and where they were going on that one line was like night and day, almost. It was just so different. nobleman they stayed with while he was getting his certifications and getting all his paperwork worked out had dinner with Mary every single night and he introduced her to what he called the Al-Quran and she was very interested in hearing about his holy book which she hadn't really ever investigated before. He was talking to her with the idea that everyone are branches of the same tree And it was a novel concept to Mary, who had been taught her whole life that anyone who didn't believe exactly as she did was going to go to 
the bad place. And here this guy is talking about brotherhood and relative morality and all the kinds of things that she had just sort of learned in Mm -hmm. a little way on her way here. And so it's a new thing for her to think about. Yet another philosophical concept that she can turn over in her mind. And um, she had a mind that just loved novelty Mm -hmm. and um, putting together pieces of a puzzle, but it's the world instead of a puzzle. I just love that about her. And as she was learning about the Quran, she decided that the best way to do it was to learn it in the Turkish language. So she started to learn it, another language for her. (laughs) Another kind of new thing, um, Mary's correspondence was really a travel log of her adventures. And she was viewing it from a perspective that no one had read about before because she was a woman. She said of the other travel writers who went before her, quote, common voyage writers are very fond of speaking of what they don't know. So what she means is they talk about women and how women are oppressed and the things that women do without actually knowing. They just look at them and fill in the blanks. But she is able to go to the sultan's harem and tour the women's apartments. She was invited to some of the finest homes in the city. And she wrote in raptures of the absolute luxury of the most beautiful woman she'd ever seen. And the whole experience just blew her mind. Now, keep in mind, she is the friend of kings and queens. And even that didn't prepare her for the luxury she encountered behind the closed doors. Kind of cool that she got to see almost like the special features of the place right. where she got to go. Right. It was a real behind the scenes tour of the area. As the party passed through modern day Istanbul, Lady Mary set out to visit the famous Hasiki Harem Sultan Hamami, the famous bathhouse at the Hagia Sophia, recently renovated and open, I think, during COVID now. I'm not sure. Double check on COVID. Um, She set out incognito in her writing habit. You know, that is the equivalent of yoga pants of the 1700s and heavily veiled and What to her wondering eyes should appear as she exited the changing room into the frigidarium? Hundreds of women, all in a state of nature, as they say, lounging, talking, having their hair braided, moving through to the caldarium, the hot baths where there's four fountains, one in each corner, hot stones right in the middle of the room for lounging. This is a place no man would ever be allowed. This was a side of life they would never have seen. Now they speculated. Oh, I'll give you that. They sure speculated lewd and lascivious things about this place. What goes on in there? <laughs> well, it's the ladies' coffee house. It's their parliament looking around in delight. I mean, she's never seen the like of this. All class distinctions seem to be erased. I mean, they're not. Probably everyone knew who was who, but right. they kept saying, join us, join us. And <laughs> what are you going to say? Like, oh my, this is so foreign to her. And I want to quote from a letter. The ladies invited her to undress and to bathe with them. And on her not making any haste, one of the prettiest ran to her to undress her. 
You can't imagine her surprise upon lifting my lady's gown and seeing her stays go all around her. She ran back quite frightened and told her companion the husbands in England were much worse than in the East, for they tied up their wives in little boxes of the shape of their bodies. She took all of her friends over to see it. They all agreed it was the greatest barbarity in the world and pitied the poor woman for being such a slave. And also, just side note, all of them hated Mr. Wortley Montague in their <laughs> hearts from then on. I don't know if it ever touched him, but I assure you he had made some instant enemies. They thought that that was a prison her husband had encased her in. Yeah. And that she had no key. Yeah. And weren't husbands the worst in England? How do, I mean, they were horrified and pitied her. And wasn't that a revelation? Because her whole life, she'd been taught that those women were oppressed. And anyway, it was a little bit of a role reversal. Yes, she was able to bust a lot of myths of the time about the women um, of the Ottoman Empire. Unfortunately, they weren't widely read. And to this day, you can find things that talk about, you know, the, the lewdness at the women's baths. And it's not even it's just women hanging out. It's like a driveway party, except in a bath, you know? <laughs> well, this theme of Turkish women being more free than Western ones runs through the rest of these letters. She was particularly interested that they had more financial freedom than she did. Their money that they came into a marriage with stayed theirs. Um, divorced women required financial maintenance, even if there hadn't been an official contract, which is something dear to her heart as she had married without a contract. Mm -hmm. Also, she said that the veils and the way they dressed give them the freedom to go wherever they wish and do what they want, which I think is a little naive, although the anonymity was undeniable. But she said their own husbands wouldn't know them. Yeah, she embraced the clothing of the area. She went in, she got the whole Turkish outfit. She wore the veils. She loved it because she could go sightseeing and she wouldn't be seen as a Westerner. She actually said that the women here, quote, have more liberty than we have. I would like to put forth the disclaimer that she was exposed to the highest class of women, the women who had the most power and the most money and were likely not, in fact, representative of the vast majority of women in Turkey. So I guess in, in both cultures, actually, the only people she was exposed to were the upper crust. However, it is undeniable that the women of this area were completely left out of diplomacy. You know, at home, there was a, a mixed crowd and the ladies could mingle and hear the news, etc., and here in Turkey, that was emphatically not her role. She was not to be in mixed company. Her advice was not sought. She certainly only witnessed the powerful men at a remove, like from a distance or by hearsay when her husband would talk to her. So that is a major difference, don't you think? Mm, oh, Yes. And I think Mary probably had the best of both worlds and that she got um, some of the freedom that the women got. But she also had this relationship with her husband where they did talk politics. You know, she had always talked to him about that. Both Lady Mary and her husband were, I wouldn't call them victims, but they suffered from turcophilia. All the novelty was really impressing them. 
And I wonder if sometimes his political views were a little too rosy in their favor. And since she couldn't be around to hear it firsthand, all she knew was the positive side of everything. And um, I think that was to his detriment. We will see that in a little bit. But Lady Mary had yet another sphere of influence to investigate. Lady Mary's adventures in the special features area gave her the opportunity to observe something else. So she started to look around and wonder to her friends, now, um, I'm noticing the absence of smallpox. Can you tell me about that? Her lady friend said, you just have the Christian women come do the thing. What thing? And it boggled them. The thing, the walnut shell, the what? And she was completely bewildered. And they were completely bewildered that they didn't understand. It's called the process of engraftment. All you do is take a sample from someone with the disease, and then you have her place the material in your vein at your wrists and ankles. You get a light case, and then you never have to worry about it for the rest of your life. Hey, presto. It was amazing. It was. She wrote back to her friends about this. It was so fascinating to her. In her letters, she told her friends how there would be whole groups like parties of up to 20 people that would get together and quote, an old woman comes with a nutshell of the matter of the best sort of smallpox and asks which vein you please to have opened. Simple as that. She also wrote back, I am patriot enough to take pains to bring this useful invention into fashion in England, and I should not fail to write to some of our doctors very particularly about it. If I knew any one of them I thought had virtue enough to destroy such a considerable branch of their revenue just for the good of mankind. Mm-hmm. Perhaps if I live to return, she says, I may have courage to go to war with them. Worley let his good relationship with the Turks get in the way of his good sense. He made a ridiculous demand on behalf of the Turks in order to broker a peace deal. But by now, the Turks were in that part of an arm wrestling match where your arm is bent back at a 45 degree angle and it's all over but the bragging. The Turks had been defeated and then here comes Mr. Wortley Montague with this, well, I guess they will come to the table. And they're like, too late, Charlie. We already won. Mm-hmm. So they can guess they'll come to the table all they want. But, you know, they will do what we say at this point. His diplomatic colleagues didn't even answer his demand. They were so embarrassed for him. I mean... It was radio silence. The Austrian emperor was extraordinarily displeased with his behavior. The British ambassador in Vienna quietly began campaigning to replace him because of this giant error. That's what you get for cutting the great political mind out of your equation. (laughs) That's what I think. Yeah, he was all worried about Mary's missteps affecting his career, and he did a big one on his own. Well, Lady Mary, blissfully unaware, gave birth to her second child. She had a little girl, and they named her, brace yourselves, Mary Wortley Montague. (laughs) She was attended by Dr. Maitland, the English surgeon that Mary had brought to Turkey in the first place, and by a local Constantinople doctor named Emmanuel Timoni, or Timony, I don't know. Intriguingly for Lady Mary, this doctor, 
the doctor from Constantinople, had prepared a treatise explaining the practice of inoculation that had been presented to the Royal College of Surgeons in England a few years before. Possibly the two, the doctor and Lady Mary, got to talking about it due to the state of her face and her scars, and she let it percolate in her mind a bit and came to a decision. When she knew that they were going to be heading back to England, she really feared for her three-year-old son, little Eddie. Can we call him that? Sure. Sure. Uh, she was she was very fearful that he too would be exposed to smallpox. So she decided to have him engraft. Now, Edward was typically a pretty liberal thinker for the time. He gave Mary a lot of free reign over her sphere, but she wasn't so sure if he would be on board with this. So while he was away at a local business trip, she got the walnut shell woman to come on over At no point did she consult her husband about this, who in any case was off on a business trip, being ineffectual, flailing, said his colleagues. They'd already recalled him. Dr. Maitland lent his disapproving presence to this affair. I can imagine him standing there with his arms crossed. It was a moment of great tension. Lady Mary was boldly going where Western medicine did not go. Little Edward was already sort of afraid of this woman. It was an old Greek, read that, Christian woman who they had gotten as the most experienced in these matters. And her appearance and manners were so foreign to him. And she got all up in his personal space and the little boy fell apart. And here's what happened, according to Dr. Maitland himself. The good woman set to work, but so awkwardly by the shaking of her hand and put the child to so much trouble with her blunt and rusty needle that I pitied his cries, who had ever been of such spirit and courage that hardly anything of pain could make him cry before. I, therefore, inoculated his other arm with my own instrument and with so little pain to him that he did not in the least complain of it. And so the torch had been passed to, quote, legitimate medicine. And just like every other person that Mary had observed who had gotten engrafted, about a week after the procedure, he experienced a high fever, some sores formed, but quickly scabbed over and quickly fell off, leaving no scarring. And within a week, he was back up to his usual level of activity, immune from smallpox, having had this mild case of it. The operation had been a success. Mary would have had her infant daughter engrafted as well, but the nurse of the daughter had never had smallpox, and Mary knew that even a mild case would be contagious, so she held off on treating her daughter at this point, which I thought was really nice, you know, because she could have taken care of her daughter because she had already had it, but... I guess maybe it isn't as nice as I think. (laughs) I don't know. Well, I'm wondering if it was a wet nurse. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. Because that would make sense because then then what? Like, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She did go home and was able to witness some of the classical locations from all of her favorite books of antiquity. Um, She took every chance she could to get offshore and wander about and picture her in the works of Homer. (laughs) I mean, she guessed that she would probably never get this chance again. So she um, she did take every opportunity on the way home. 
she took advantage of every opportunity, including seeing antiquities on the ground and picking them up and bringing them home like you would a seashell from the beach. Okay, can I please tell you a story? That- <laughs> sure. I think the statute of limitations has passed. Also, her name's Lisa, so find her. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Once upon a time, I worked with a woman who had taken a trip to the Coliseum with her family, her husband and her son. And as you might guess, at the Coliseum, they frown upon taking pieces of said Coliseum. Right. She had a collection of rocks taken from favorite places, and she saw a rock on the ground that was her target. And she had her husband distract one guard, and she had her son distract (laughs) another guard, and she waited for the cameras to pass. And she worked this rock into her shoe, and oh, it just took forever. And it was like a whole bunch of taking pictures she didn't want, and this and that. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, it was like that music played, do, 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 do. And they peaced out, and they like missed half the tour so she could get this rock. And they like got outside, and they were high-fiving because they got the rock. And she noticed something in her shoe. It felt weird. The heat of her foot had melted this rock, which was, in fact, some chewed up gum. (laughs) So the joke was on her at the Coliseum scored a point. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. I don't think anything that circular happened to Lady Mary, who, who just filled her pockets with stuff and got back on the boat. That's right. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) <laughs> she also went to Paris, which um, she H-A-T-E-D, though she did meet the king, uh, Grandpa King, who at this time had um, only been king for about four years and was still in his youthful fabulosity, popularity and virility. Hooray. But see, it's so funny. She, like almost everyone that goes there, even for the next hundred years, talks about how much makeup the French ladies wear and how bizarre it looks. And they they look like puppets. Isn't that curious? Because she was just in the Ottoman Empire where women dressed very differently, but there it was exotic and she was fascinated by it. And in this country, which, of course, her country has been at battle with for very long time. It was gaudy. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Perspective. So Mr. Wortley Montague's mission had been a categorical failure, but what it had done is given Mary material for her future writing. You know, it had given her a window in the world. It had given her a rich experience of visions to draw from. So somehow I think this is going to come out a win, literary speaking, as well as world health speaking. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Well, travel, I mean, it changes you. And that's what she, I mean, she didn't have the negative things that he had. Nothing negative happened to her, really. It was all positive. Well, poems were written in her honor by her old friends, Mr. Gay and Mr. Pope, who said, and I quote, if the first woman got into trouble for tasting only one apple, what punishment must be reserved for one who has robbed the whole tree of fruit? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can think what we want about that sort of obsessive poem, but Mary was back, baby. Rival courts both wanted her around. Talk about diplomacy. They were at the point where they were all no-speaks, and she managed to navigate those murky waters. They should have sent her alone to Turkey. Ah, It wouldn't have, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) In 1721, smallpox was again stalking England. 
And for some reason, I am no epidemiologist, it was particularly fatal to children. In April of that year, Mary sent for her old friend, Dr. Maitland, who had done, in fact, half of an inoculation and asked him to inoculate her daughter, who was then three years old. He recommended having other doctors there as witnesses. Good idea. And he went ahead and performed the operation. And then an absolute parade of doctors cruised through to witness this child playing happily with smallpox bumps on her face. They were just astonished to see how she had just snapped back. Like in their experience, giving smallpox to a healthy child is just like, why are you killing this child? But here she is playing with dolls and wondering why these 24 men are in her playroom. You know, it provoked much discussion. (laughs) Definitely. One of the doctors that paraded by had just lost two of his sons to smallpox, and he immediately went home and inoculated his only child. He thought that this was effective. Now, remember, these are guys that are still bleeding their patients, not just physically, but that's a charge. You know, that's their business. Give them all these treatments for smallpox. And I hate to think of medicine as a business, but that's unfortunately how these guys are thinking of it. Well, Mary already talked about that, remember? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if I could speak to anyone who's willing to give out the majority of his revenue um, and convince them. Well, by June, the process had made the papers. Highborn friends of Lady Mary's received the child into their dining rooms to hear all about it. Poor little thing was exhibited (laughs) like a specimen. Well, Princess Caroline, friend to Lady Mary, was impressed at the result of Lady Mary's bravery in getting her own children inoculated and was going to move forward with her own children, but only after a series of tests first. Her father-in-law, the king, arranged for an experiment to be done on prisoners at Newgate Prison. They were um, to become inoculated, and in exchange, not only would they be immune from smallpox in the best possible scenario, but they would also uh, have their sentences cut short. These were condemned prisoners, though. They were all, like, sentenced to die. So that makes the stakes a little lower. I mean, you know, yeah. For smallpox. I'm just saying, like, their choice was die w- one way or die the other way and with a chance of freedom, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they all took it in front of a giant audience of doctors. Five of them caught it and survived. The sixth admitted he'd had it as a child but wanted the deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all six of them were released. You know what? That was really brave of you to yeah. that to us. <laughs> Goodbye. And then a second test was performed. This time... Uh, They did it on 11 orphans. Mm. Yeah. It was also successful. And that convinced the king that it would be okay for his grandchildren to have. One year after Lady Mary's own daughter had been inoculated, two royal princesses were given the procedure. Princess Amelia and Princess Caroline came through with flying colors. Now, I will tell you, those particular lady persons were the third control group because they did not right then inoculate the heir to the throne. They later, after his sisters came through, chased him down where he was and had it done in the field to him. But I'm like, that's kind of dirty that you'll risk the two little girls. And only then will you go ahead and see, I don't know, that seemed dirty. So it was widely reported and other noble families began to follow. Unfortunately, it was not an unmitigated success, as was 
almost inevitable, two deaths suddenly halted the optimism. Ultimately, between 3 and 10% of people um, who went through inoculation actually did die. There was one high-profile aristocrat who did die three weeks after his inoculation, but an autopsy confirmed that that is not what killed him. Unfortunately, by that point, the news was already out that he had died from this. So there's no backtracking it. You know how that once it's let free, it's hard to get it back into the tube. That was a mixed metaphor. (laughs) Well, religious objections to the procedure began to be bandied about. This is flying in the face of God's will, who should be the one to decide when we die. To which the learned doctor said, what did he give men minds for then, if not for scientific advancement? In fact, you're obliged to be inoculated. And they quoted Martin Luther, the OG. I mean, (laughs) the man who invented Protestantism. I quote, writing during the bubonic plague of the 1500s. I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I will fumigate, purify the air, administer medicine, and take medicine. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order to not become contaminated and perchance inflict and pollute others and cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will find me. But if I have done what he has expected of me, I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. Nice. I don't know how you're going to object religiously when the OG says that's the right thing to do. Right. It's like that joke about God, why did you let me die in the flood? He's like, I sent you a boat. I sent you a helicopter. I sent you, you know, you know that joke that I just really botched. (laughs) But there were a lot of religious proponents as well. And so we're going to leave them to fight their theocratic battles among themselves. But another enemy of inoculation rose up. This one Mary already predicted. Doctors were angered by amateurs and women And let me quote, there is a pamphlet by a man with the Shakespearean name of William Wagstaff, (laughs) who urged doctors not to allow their profession to be usurped. And he says, posterity will scarcely be brought to believe that an experiment practiced only by a few ignorant women amongst an illiterate people should suddenly and upon slender experience in one of the politest nations in the world be received into the royal palace? He is so shocked. And so Lady Mary was angry and she took up her own pen to refute Mr. Wagstaff And she wrote a essay entitled, A Plain Account of the Inoculating of Smallpox by a Turkey Merchant. Out of compassion to the numbers of people who have been abused and deluded by the knavery and ignorance of physicians, I'm determined to give a true account of the manner of inoculating the smallpox as it is practiced in Constantinople with constant success and without any ill consequence whatsoever. I shall sell no drugs. I shall take no fees. I shall get nothing by it but the private satisfaction of having done good to mankind. Yeah, the doctors that were against this were physicians. Charles Maitland, who was Mary's surgeon, was actually considered a lower class of doctor. Physicians at the time were like the best. And then surgeons were like these 
former butchers, you know, they just deal with all the blood and stuff. They don't know anything about medicine. So that was another complaint that was being thrown out into this controversy. Okay, another Downton Abbey reference. Do you remember when Lady Sybil was in such distress and the local doctor insisted that she must be removed to the surgery and get a C-section? But the eminent noble physician to the royals said, oh, no, no, we don't need to do that. Patted that doctor on the head. And who died? One of our favorite characters in the entire show. Because they didn't listen to the guy with all the practical experience. They listened to the guy with the noble customers and the fancy office. And um, Mary was just determined that those were not going to be the factors preventing her countrymen from being saved for smallpox. So unwillingly, people wanted Lady Mary to sort of become the public face of the proponents of, you know, the inoculation, which she really resisted. Um, It only got more acute after a noted statistician began to publish his findings about the success of inoculation. The number of patients requesting this procedure had increased exponentially. And Mary, a lot of these people who wanted this procedure for their families were her friends, you know, her circle of society people. And Mary herself was actually going to their homes in secret and doing the procedure on their families. But she didn't like the idea of being the poster mom for it. But she also, on the other hand, really wanted as many people inoculated as possible. And so Mary was in a quandary and she said, I am so much pulled about and enjoined to visit people and speak to them, I must flee to the country for solace. And that will bring us to the end of part one. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) When I went into this, I was like, oh, she brought inoculations to the Western world. But that's not even the whole story. Not only do we have more to talk about with regard to our old enemy smallpox, Lady Mary has a whole other career ahead of her that we have only briefly touched on. We will see you next time. Bye. You can banter with Susan on Twitter at The History Chicks with an X or follow us on Facebook at The History Chicks spelled the regular way. While you're on the Facebook page, click the button in the middle that says join group and you can join basically a massive salon of like-minded people where the conversations are very active. While you're waiting for the media recommendations, you should head on over to our Pinterest board to clap your eyes upon the visage of Lady Mary and her compatriots and some links, including the promised Istanbul Constantinople video that we love so well. A quick shout out to the Bowery Boys at thebowerryboyshistory.com, where they have just done a biography of Audrey Munson, a tragic muse, and we advocate you going to listen to that episode of their show. The songs in the middle are Sonata No. 5 in G Major, Minuet by Thomas Gladwin, and Saz Taksim by Cara Nomadica. And the song at the end is Daughters of History by Morning Spy. See you next time.
Now 